Welcome back to Gateways, a podcast about the people, places, and possibilities of our regional cities. I'm Ben Foreman, Director of the Gateway Cities Innovation Institute at Mass Inc. Here on Gateways, we've talked a lot about the importance of building complete neighborhoods. Access to quality fresh foods is absolutely essential to the health of an urban neighborhood in terms of resident well-being and also when it comes to the desirability and the stability of a residential neighborhood. For the past decade or so, leaders in the field of urban agriculture have been some of our most creative gateway city problem solvers as they've worked to bring residents healthy foods and create more jobs and economic opportunity and address a major source of inequality in our society. Today, we're talking about where we stand in the quest to bring healthy foods into our cities. My guests today have been on the front lines of these efforts. Lydia Sisson is the co-founder of Mill City Grows in Lowell. Liz Ogilvie is the director of the Springfield Food Policy Council. And Rosa Root is the Urban Agriculture Coordinator for the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. Lydia, Liz, and Rose, thanks to all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks. Glad to be here. I, I think we want to begin with all of you, for our listeners who may be new to this conversation, uh, with how this movement has kind of grown up over the last decade or so, or maybe it was even earlier. I'm not that familiar with it, but I don't know, if, Lydia, you launched or worked with others to launch Mill City Grows in 2012. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what, what um, inspired you to get involved in this in Lowell? Sure. Um, so I'm a co-founder of Mill City Grows with Francie Slater, but I actually have just transitioned out of my role at Mill City Grows and it is still going strong under great leadership. And I, um, you know, Francie and I were not originally from Lowell. We are what a lot of folks call blow-ins, but um, we settled in Lowell and I lived there for 13 years. And um, when we were both looking for space to grow food, like community gardens and spaces like that, we couldn't find anything that was open to the public. There were a couple community gardens, but they were memberships through organizations. Um, and then we met some folks from a neighborhood group who wanted to put in a community garden and they were starting to work with the city. Um, and we offered to kind of help them with that process, learning from other communities to figure out how to help kind of launch uh, community garden and urban agriculture programming and it just has continued to grow and evolve since then uh, in Lowell in particular. Uh, and Liz what about in Springfield how long has Springfield had a food policy council and, and how did you get involved in food access issues? So, actually the urban ag movement the food equity movement started with gardening the community now I want to say close to 22 years ago and it was started by a, then a very young woman, a black woman named Ruby Maddox. And she was really mostly interested in teaching kids like where their food came from. There wasn't a huge thought process around analysis. And over the years, that analysis began to be developed. I got involved with Guardian the Community a little more than 10 years ago. I was living in the neighborhood and some kids came knocking on my door and said, where do you buy your vegetables? Do you eat vegetables? Do you know what it's like to um, try to get vegetables? And I'm originally from Springfield, born and lived part of my childhood here, but it moved away, lived here as a short time, for a short time as an adult, and had just come back because President Obama had just been elected. I was working in Chicago and teaching at the university there, and I thought, well, if this can happen, if this person who isn't even the smartest half of that marriage could get elected, 
um, to be president, I should go home and do something in Springfield. And then the reality of that was really not manifesting. And I wasn't sure what to do until these 14, 15 year olds showed up on my doorstep and they were little organizers. And I thought, oh my gosh. Um, and so I started as a volunteer and now these years later, I serve as the board chair. And I think for me, it was really clear after years of working on social justice and poverty, how deeply systemically racist the food system was as I began to work in it, that it wasn't just about, it wasn't a geography question around why we don't have grocery stores or why we didn't have farmers markets. When we think about systemic racism, we think about police brutality, and that's obviously the most horrific manifestation, visual manifestation of it, particularly when someone loses their life as so many people have. But the whole construct is rooted in the enslavement of, of black people and the removal of indigenous people from land. And in some parts of our country, that was prime agricultural land. So the food system really started racism in this country when we were brought here to farm for the benefit of others and on land that other people were killed or um, physically removed from. So while our work is deeply rooted in urban agriculture, DTC, we say we grow food, community and leadership and we do, and not necessarily always in those orders. My orientation to the food system work came in through urban ag and now the Food Policy Council, which was historically really policy focused and in recent years became very policy systems and environmental change focused because we realized we need all of it. We need policy, but we need things to be happening that line up with the policies at the same time. And we need residents to recognize that they have power to affect this change through who they vote for and how they organize and that food is a basic human right. And particularly for people of color who are the most marginalized in the food system, and I'm really clear that there are poor white people all over um, Massachusetts, all over the country, but it started with us. And so the fix has to start with us from my vantage point. And when we would design for those who are the hardest to reach, we all do better. So my construct is really urban um, organized and I want policies that support our ability to grow food in the city and our meaning anybody who wants to grow it, whether it's organizations or individuals. Uh, and the Food Policy Council and DTC create a space for me to have those kinds of conversations about growing food and even being able to grow enough food to supply to stores so that everybody who's not growing can still buy what they want and when they want it, when it's in season, and that that Everybody means we can grow crops that are culturally relevant to all the people who live here. We don't all want kale. That's great. A lot to, a lot to unpack. We're going to come back to, to, to some of those themes, Liz. Let me bring Rose in. Uh, Rose, you work for a Department of Agriculture. In some ways, a Department of Agriculture and in, in urban seem like completely opposite things. Uh, how did the department embrace urban agriculture? And when, when did that happen? And what has it been like to try and to focus on cities. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's funny because I come from a long line of dairy farmers. So when I was first introduced to the idea of urban agriculture, I just thought it was nuts. I couldn't imagine corn stalks in the middle of uh, triple deckers. Um, so it, it began when I when um, I think around 2012 was the conversation within the city of Boston 
regarding um, Article 89, and that was to create zoning ordinances that would essentially make it legal to farm within city limits, because at that time it was illegal. And it, it, you know, the conversation led to um, de a design uh, meeting that would happen once a month for about two years. And around that time, our, the, our new commissioner uh, was a champion, uh, Greg Watson uh, of Urban Ag. And uh, I think at the end of 2013, the ordinances were finally uh, adopted uh, for Article 89. And also at that time, uh, there was demand uh, for support for urban, okay, now it's legal, but now we need money for resources. So and this is what we were hearing from constituents. So. Uh, we put together a $200,000 pilot project, just put together an RFR to see if there was any interest. For that $200,000 that was out there for commercial urban farming projects, we received $2 million in requests. So that said, um, we uh, issue, issued the money, the awards, and from there, the urban farming program was born. Um, it really, you know, essentially it, it came from the, the demand from constituents in gateway cities. Um, so folks could um, have access to resources to help them with infrastructure. And is this com community gardens or commercial farming or, or a mix of both? Initially, uh, for so our, uh, the grant program started in 2014. Uh, it was only last year where we had a pilot for community gardens. But for essentially the majority of time uh, for the funding has been for commercial urban farms. When we think about urban agriculture, is it mostly on um, outdoors on land or is it indoors? Well, the project, I mean, it could, in our uh, RFR, uh, we uh, specify that it can be open field, it can be rooftop, it can be hydroponic, it could be aquaponics. Um, any sort of uh, medium that you're using uh, the, the connecting dot is that it's in within a densely populated community in an urban center. Got it. But what is most common today? Is, is one much more prevalent than the other or is it all a mix? Well, for what we're funding in Massachusetts, it might be different in other cities, but in Massachusetts, pretty much the applications that we see coming through MDAR are for open fields. More and more, uh, we're getting uh, more greenhouse requests. Okay, that's. I think that's helpful just to understand what what it, what it looks like, and in terms of uh, where you're seeing the growth in urban farms, is it mostly gateway cities? A lot in Boston, a mixture of the two. Yeah, it's it's across the state: um, Holyoke, Springfield, Worcester, Lowell, Lawrence, uh, Lynn, Boston, Somerville. I know the city of Brockton has been working on ordinances uh, for. You know, the, you know, to allow for um, growing in the city. There are other cities that are interested. Um, the the uh, the work that it takes to communicate and coordinate uh, with the, you know a, a city's constituency to um, allow for to agree on uh, farming within the city. It, it's a it's a long drawn out process. So it's sort of stalled a little bit with, you know, more cities taking it on, uh, but, it, but essentially it's a, some cities taken on case by case to allow for a commercial enterprise to happen. Lydia and Liz, in terms of policy, it sounds like some of it was zoning and ordinances to get local communities to allow it, and certainly funding to allow businesses and organizations to start up. But what other types of policies are important to the growth of this movement? 
Lydia, do you want to go first? Yeah, I, so uh, we were pretty fortunate in Lowell when we got started, when Mill City Grows launched, we were working really closely with um, the planning department to launch a community garden program that was administered through the city of Lowell. Um, but, you know, since then we've worked with a lot of kind of statewide campaigns, including campaigns with Liz around the Healthy Incentive Program, which is um, allowing SNAP customers to get extra funds to spend each month on fresh fruits and vegetables from farms, farm stands, farmers markets, and mobile markets, and CSAs. Um, so, so we've worked on those kinds of things on the local level, not as much policy, but definitely more on the statewide kind of organizing. And a lot of that, like funding the Massachusetts Food Trust Program, is around like invest, like Rose was saying about the Urban Ag Program, it's like getting the, the state and other organizations to invest in making sure that cities have resources and small business owners and um, have resources to really bring local food and nutritious food to be accessible for residents. Because right now that is not the case, as Liz was saying. Rose, can you tell us about the grant programs the state is running right now? Sure. Um, so for the Urban Ag Program, for the past couple of years, it's been about $350,000 uh, per year. The Massachusetts Food Venture Program is $1 million. The Massachusetts Food Trust Program, uh, which is, a, it's twofold. It's an actual trust that's managed uh, by two nonprofits. And uh, the state also offers $1 million uh, to fund um, the trust program. And then there's the resiliency, uh, the Massachusetts Food Resiliency Fund that was just established in response to COVID and the impacts on the food system. So, and that one is $36 million. And we're actually in the process of uh, looking at uh, applications now and funding uh, projects. Liz, let me come back to you now. You talked about policy, but you also talked about systems change um, in undoing systemic racism. So, you know, what is on your front burner? So much of the same that's on Lydia's and um, Rose's, except that, well, all of it, all of the same. And ultimately for us, it's about getting fresh food to um, people. And the people are in the city, and that's where we think it's easier to grow food. Um, and farmers historically have not, you know, in Massachusetts, we just don't do a good job um, with engaging, keeping our food in the city, in the in our cities, in our states overall. And and then definitely, folks don't look at cities like Lowell, Lawrence, Springfield, Holyoke, even the the outlying smaller towns out here as places that people want food. So. A policy change for us was passing in a gardening ordinance that said we could grow food um, in our yards and on urban lots. And that was what enabled gardening the community to go forward. And it enabled the Food Policy Council to take over some lots and grow on them. We also made some policy changes within the school district that guaranteed that by 2022, and now these numbers can have to be adjusted because of the impact that COVID has had, that every school that had the physical space would have a school garden and curriculum to go with it. Uh, and so that became a part of our school wellness policy. And we 
we knew that we needed to have that policy because right now we have some interest in school gardens and both people within the schools themselves, teachers and administrators, and then the Food Policy Council nudging us along. We now have 29 gardens because of our advocacy work. But I've been around long enough to know that when a person or the group of persons who has all the passion goes away, that the work um, can change and, and be forgotten. And so that's why it was important to have policy. And systems changes look like when there is a garden lot um, that's not buildable or maybe smaller than buildable, that the city by default will come to the urban ag community and say, is this a growable lot? That a family dollar or a dollar tree won't become the first, uh, the first choice. And the environmental change then is obviously the impact of all these growing sites. So this year, the Food Policy Council recognizing that schools were closed and we could not teach kids school gardening, we took over several of the gardens with the support of the school district and started growing food just for production to give away to families. And then we took some of the community, former community gardening sites that were not being used by the gardeners and we planted those for production. And then we received some grant support so that we could put raised bed backyard gardens in families' backyards. We got that funding um, commitment late in April and through the month of May and June, we installed 56 gardens. So we want to show people that whether their kids are participating in gardening in the community, whether parents are volunteering in school gardens, whatever their relationship is to agriculture, if they have not had a recent relationship, that we are all better off when we grow even, you know, a little bit of lettuce and tomatoes in our backyard. But I have families who tell me that they're eating every single day from some of these gardens we put in. So would I love a policy that looks at community development block grant money and automatically makes an appropriation to the Food Policy Council so that we could continue to do this every year and expand how many residents have gardens? I absolutely would. I don't know that that's something that's the highest on our list. There are, we have 600 lots in our city. So I'd like to see the city be really aggressive about uh, a strategy or a plan to get those into agricultural production. And to prove that it's viable, the Food Policy Council received a designation this year so that we could sell some of the produce that we raise um, using for, to folks who have SNAP benefits and exercising their Healthy Incentives Program, which is a, an amazing policy and program that we have in the state of Massachusetts, but historically, had been really underutilized in urban centers. Families who have SNAP get an additional benefit when they shop at a farmer's market, a farm stand, or buy their food through a CSA. But uh, many cities and parts of the states didn't have enough vendors who were authorized, and that really broke down around geography, and it broke down even more, sadly, around race. And so the Food Policy Council advocated with lots of folks across the country, I mean, across the state, to get DTA, Department of Transitional Assistance, to open that up. And so now there are many more vendors of color, many of whom are serving cities like Springfield and Holyoke and Lowell and others across the Commonwealth, Worcester, um, to provide more food. And so those are spaces where, where you can see that by having a policy and then a system in place um, and having worked to create the environment where it's what people want and it's demonstrated that it's what people want. Let me ask, Liz, I mean, it sounds like you've done amazing work on the environmental education side and getting access to 
uh, the community access to food through gardening. Is there a commercial scale urban farming going on in, in Springfield that's creating jobs? Uh, not enough. And it's about, that's about public will and capacity. So are there, there are definitely people of all ages, but you know, I always think about young adults who have been unfortunately really undereducated by our public school system and not ready to enter the workforce um, in the ways that we think of from more privileged communities. But there are folks who just recognize, particularly for people of color, that this is in our roots, it's in our blood, and they really want to be able to exercise that. They really want to be able to like live it out and reclaim this really horrific history that we have. But we don't have will in our city to build a grocery store. You know, our elected leaders were more concerned with building a casino than they were with looking at um, an acre or multi-acre site of land and say, oh, that could be a farm. And it could be a farm that could sell produce to our schools, um, where we've done a lot of organizing and advocacy towards having healthier food on the plates. And it could sell to our corner stores so that folks could put bodegas out. But that's, you know, it's a long campaign. It's something we want. There is an urban ag, well, I use that term loosely. There's an organization here called Wellspring, and they are doing hydroponic growing in a greenhouse. The majority of us that have greenhouses in the urban ag movement that I know of, we got them so we could extend our seasons, not to replace in-ground growing because it has huge impacts on the climate and the environment. The growing of food and soils, and Lydia can speak much more beautifully about this than I can, but you know, there's carbon restoration that goes on. Sure, sure. Uh, Rose, let me just come back to, to you on this question of commercial scale urban agriculture, because I'm sure uh, it's significant capital upfront costs to get something at, at real scale off the ground. And I know we're really thinking about particularly how we resource minority entrepreneurs so that they have the ability to create and grow businesses and build wealth. Is, um, is it, are those the kind of grants that we're making as a state to help hydroponic growers and other larger operations in cities? Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's that's the um, pretty much if you want to say the theme of our of the RFR is that um, the funding is and the program has been created to really address the challenges for urban farmers um, to create um, direct access in low to moderate income communities. The organizations that we've funded, uh, and I should say that we have funded about, it's, it's a small but mighty group, about 20, 25 individual uh, projects and farms. And we uh, funded a lot of these uh, more than a few times. Uh, I'd say since 2014, we've funded about 75 individual projects um, with investment of an investment of $2.5 million. That's capital investments that have gone to organizations specifically focused on um, creating urban farms, supporting urban farms in low to moderate income communities. And I'm really uh, happy um, to say that I think we are, we're the because I'm competitive, because I, I, I'm really happy to say that we were, um, I know, I believe that Massachusetts is the first uh, state to fully invest and in, with resources, i.e. money, um, to urban agriculture and since 2014. I think there are a couple of states that uh, had a couple 
pilot programs, maybe Pennsylvania or Minnesota. Um, but we have definitely invested in, in these communities uh, for, you know, the um, increase of uh, direct act access. And access is about physical access, but also financial access. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, so I, I want to wrap up. And as we do, I want to, you know, get back to the, to the issue around food insecurity and, and how we respond immediately. Um, before you go, if I could just say one thing. Sure. Um, for sure, guarding the community and the Food Policy Council, we, our work has been advanced by MDAR's more progressive efforts. I don't say this because Rose is on the call, because Rose knows I always try to tell the truth. But MDAR, um, and, and Rose in particular, has really created uh, an environment where people value urban ag agriculture and, um, and want to, I think, pay more attention to it. And MDAR demonstrates that through their investments. GTC was able to build our farm store, build our greenhouse, uh, acquire our land, do everything that we've done because of the support that we have received through MDAR. And Rose also serves on the evaluation committee for the Massachusetts Food Trust. And this year, the Food Policy Council was approved for a grant from that trust to build our infrastructure to grow food. So I didn't want my my comments to feel completely pessimistic. I think we're coming <laughs> along. I definitely feel like we're a more progressive state. And, um, and I don't think we'd be where we are without that commitment and understanding from MDAR. And I'd, I'd be interested in what Lydia thinks, but I think that's really important to lift out. That's what I mean when I talk about will, like there is demonstrated will. So just for, Final thoughts, since we're, we're just about out of time. Does anybody on the policy side want to share last ideas or, or in terms of food insecurity and making sure that we um, are, are putting a spotlight on the good work that urban agricultural leaders are doing to make sure that we get food to families in need today? Yeah, um, this is Lydia again. Yeah, I think that, you know, making sure that we're learning from examples, especially in other gateway cities. I know that there, Rose, I can't remember when you did the municipal session at the state house, maybe it was five years ago, but, you know, bringing municipal leaders together around learning from one another's zoning, I think has been really, really helpful for us in Lowell, but I, I'm assuming, you know, just sharing the work across the Commonwealth with other gateway cities really helps to set the precedent. So I think having those moments where we're sharing um, info about zoning and best practices for supporting urban agriculture through that is, is huge. Um, and to, just to follow up on that uh, in, in regards to um, policy and support, uh, obviously the, our governor, Governor Baker, uh, Lieutenant Governor Polito are very supportive of urban ag um, and it's exciting to hear them say it at um, the mass uh, urban, uh, sorry, uh, agriculture day at the state house. Um, they've said for a few years now. Um, and also to follow up on the important point of uh, partnership and sharing, um, we've uh, partnered with an, another urban ag group to put on conferences for six years. We um, missed the past two years, uh, but we will be um, hosting a urban farming conference, a statewide 
uh, for exactly what uh, Liz and Lydia have spoke to, and, and that's the, you know, the importance of partnership in, in policy and information, and we'll be a stronger sector for it. Great. Well, it's, it's good to know about those, and we'll be sure uh, we, we keep a lookout for future um, forums at the State House and elsewhere. I want to thank you all again for taking time to, to share your work with us. It's really important, and um, I'm glad to know to know more about it. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's episode of Gateways. I'm Ben Foreman. Gateways is produced by Libby Gormley. Music by Worcester's own, the Curtis Mayflower. Thank you to our sponsors, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Eastern Bank, Enterprise Bank, and the Barr Foundation. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.